In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after he suffered by many proofs, appearing to to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the history of Christianity is really about a Jewish carpenter who preached the Jewish scriptures. He chose Jewish disciples. He was rejected by Jewish leaders, only to become the founder of the largest and mostly non-Jewish religion in the world. So the book of Acts kind of starts the story. How do we get here? How do we get to a place where the whole Western world has been influenced and changed by this person, Jesus, this, this Jewish rabbi from 2,000 years ago. How do we get there? And Luke is writing to this person identified as Theophilus. The name Theophilus means lover of God or friend of God. And so there are some people who would say that this is just a a kind of a, a representative of anybody who wants to be a friend of God and here's how it works. But And that's a great way to look at it, a great way to apply it. But actually, if you look at Luke's gospel, this is written actually to a person. He's called, oh, excellent, Theophilus. Probably the person who funded Luke to write Luke and Acts together. And and as he writes this, Luke writes this, he, he makes it really clear. He says this phrase that is so important. It sets the tone for the whole book. He says, I previously wrote, he says, and I have dealt with all that Jesus, notice, began to do and teach. And the implication is clear. Jesus is still doing and teaching. His ministry hasn't ended. How can that be? I mean, we know he was crucified. If we take the Bible as historical reality, as historical fact, we know he was crucified. So how could he continue his work? Well, because we know the story doesn't end there. And what we're going to see today is is basically we're going to give us kind of some pace for the book of Acts, and some outline for the book of Acts. And again, we hope that what we see is that the book of Acts is really all about Jesus. In fact, we're calling this series Jesus Continued. Because God is still making himself known through the person of Jesus. 
So let's pick it up again in verse 1. I'm going to show you, I want to kind of bring four things to you guys today about Jesus, this Jesus that's in the book of Acts. First and foremost, in the first three verses, we're talking about the living Jesus. So, so Luke writes, he says, look, I, I began to do, and I wrote about all I began to do and teach until the time that Jesus was taken up. Now, it's really clear that, that Luke is saying, Jesus is my subject. He's what I've written about. You read the Gospel of Luke, and you'll see that the Gospel of Luke, of course, like all the Gospels, is about Jesus. He's saying now the book of Acts is all about Jesus. And it's important to recognize that, that Luke specifically, all, all the, the Gospel writings we would say are historically accurate and favorable, but Luke specifically is known as a world-class historian. He, he starts off the, his Gospel this way. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke wasn't necessarily an eyewitness. Well, we'll find out later in the book of Acts that Luke met Paul on one of his missionary journeys. You'll, you'll actually see in the book of Acts where at first it's written like, they did this and they did that and they did this, and all of a sudden he says, starts saying, and we did this and we did that. So he meets, he meets Paul and then begins to uh, follow Paul in his ministry. Probably at Antioch is where he meets Paul. But he wasn't an eyewitness of necessarily all these things. He wasn't an eyewitness of what, of what Jesus uh, began to do and teach, but Luke had plenty of time and plenty of access to, to interview all the eyewitnesses, which is one of the reasons why Luke's gospel is the most full. We get all these details about his Jesus' childhood, and we get all this testimony that would have probably come directly from Mary or, or Mary's cousin Elizabeth, and so on and so forth. And so he was a known historian. A historian. In fact, a, one uh, Greco-Roman historian from Oxford University writes this. He says, The historical framework is exact, in the time and place, uh, in, in, in terms of time and place, the details are precise and correct. For Acts, the confirmation historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to, to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. So when we're reading the book of Acts, we're reading history. The history of how Jesus is continuing his ministry. Does that get you at all excited? It gets me like really excited, I have to say. Because one of the things about the book of Acts is it covers 30 years. 30 years of the church's first, first part of the church's history. And there's all these radical things happening. And it's interesting because I remember the first time when I, I read the book of Acts and I was blown away by what I've seen. And then the first time I began to, to teach the book of Acts. This is my third time of teaching the book of Acts. And the first time I went to teach the book of Acts. And I realized this takes place over 30 years. And it hit me. Gosh, if I looked at just the supernatural experiences and I only wrote and highlighted those things, my life would look like the book of Acts. And I'm saying that as a, that's not kind of a humble brag. What I mean by that is, 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 is that... We sometimes look at this and we think, oh, how come our everyday experience isn't like the book of Acts? Actually, maybe it is. Maybe it is. If we are those who are wanting to seek after God, wanting to, to make Jesus known by the power of the Spirit as what was happening in the book of Acts, maybe it's more like the book of Acts than we think. Maybe the frequency of the supernatural manifestations, well, maybe we need to measure expectations about that. And I was encouraged 
Because as much as I, I have my fair share of supernatural experiences by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit, what I've seen consistently over and over again is God leading me out to share Jesus, to know him and to make him known. And this is what we're going to see in the book of Acts, this historical reality. But also, we need to recognize that Acts continues where Luke's gospel ends. That's also what Luke is trying to make clear here. In Luke chapter 24, here's what we read. And the resurrected Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. That's Jesus blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus is indeed Luke's subject, and he's handling Jesus as the historical figure that he is. But also, Jesus in Luke's gospel, actually Jesus in history, presented himself alive. This is why we're starting off by saying we're talking about the living Jesus. Look at verse 3 again. It says, and he presented himself alive, Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings. Now, now what does he mean about his sufferings? Let's not forget, Jesus was, after after sort of living a, a life of relative obscurity, basically showing being a, the perfect child and the, probably the perfect big brother, though his family thought he was a, maybe a bit nuts because he was saying he was directly from God. Uh, he, he lives this kind of life of obscurity. So he's about 30 years old, and then he begins this ministry, and this ministry is, is, is known by an authority of God being demonstrated, especially in the book of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus demonstrating authority over demons, evil spirits, authority over sickness, authority over death through raising people from the dead, authority over creation, and probably most importantly, an authority to forgive sins. He demonstrates the very authority of God, and after doing that in a way, and after loving in a way that blew people's minds, children would come up to him. And he'd accept them, something that wasn't culturally normal. He, he, he treated people that were ostracized by everyone else in society, he treated them with the value and dignity without ignoring their sin. He lives this way, this perfect, attractive life, and what do we do as human beings? We crucify him. See, when the Bible talks about his sufferings, when Luke writes about his sufferings, it's about the fact that he was arrested. Jesus was arrested like a criminal. He was unjustly tried and beaten. He was forsaken by most of his disciples. He was rejected by his own countrymen. He was mocked by the religious leaders of his day. And he experienced the agony of the cross. And all this was experienced for him to pay for our sins. And listen, all of this was pointless if Jesus isn't the living Jesus. The scripture says this in 1 Corinthians 15, you guys who have been with us for a while, we just finished 1 Corinthians and we talked about this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. 
You see, listen, if Luke's gospel ended before the resurrection, if there was no resurrection, if he's not the living Jesus, then his story ends badly and he's not a good example. It looks like an indie film. Everybody dies. Horrible. But that's not how it ends. Because it says, after he suffered, what did he do? He presented himself alive and he appeared to the disciples during 40 days while speaking about the kingdom of God. It says he did this, Luke says he did this by many proofs. Now this is not some sort of like, oh look, there's Bigfoot in the forest kind of sightings, okay? We know just what's recorded, just what's recorded. We know 10 or at least 10, if not 11 times, separate accounts in the gospel accounts where Jesus presents himself alive. And not just like, again, walking by, but he interacted with the disciples, many at one time, long conversations, confrontation over breakfast, miracles still happening after his resurrection. He, he, I mean, he interacted with them for 40 days. We, I said we have like 10 or 11 recorded, but there's probably many, many more than this. Why is this important? Because the Jesus of the book of Acts is the living Christ. The Jesus we sing to is not just the Jesus of history. He's the Jesus who's alive right now. Amen? Amen. We sing to him now. This gospel uh, gives us one of these these, uh, 10 or 11 times. In Luke 24, here's what we read. It says, In the resurrected Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? You would say that to, to us today, I think. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Jesus is saying, listen, you want evidence? Here you go. Look at this. Check it out. The same Jesus that was, you saw crucified. The Jesus that you ran away from when he was arrested. The Jesus that did all these miracles in your presence. It's me, and I still love you, and I still have a great plan for you. Stop doubting. I'm the living Jesus. That's the first Jesus that, that Luke wants us to see in this narrative. The second is this, the promising Jesus. Not just, I don't mean that in the sense of, oh, he's got a lot of potential. He's promising. I mean, he makes promises, okay? That's what I mean by the promising Jesus. Look at chapter, I mean, verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, now while he was, while staying with them, this is Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So this is after he's resurrected, and he shows himself to the disciples. He says, look, I don't want you to go away. I don't want you to scatter and and fulfill my great commission yet. I want you to wait. That's important to think about this, okay? The order is wait. First thing you need to do is wait. Now, next week, we'll, we'll talk about what does waiting look like, okay? What does it actually look like? But it's important for us to know right now that this waiting is waiting in anticipation for what he's going to do. He's promising to do this, and the waiting is, God, we're going to wait believing you're going to do what you say. Now, he, he goes on to say in verse, in verse 4, it says, which he said, this is, now he's quoting Jesus, which is interesting, because he says, 
which he said, quoting Jesus, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What's interesting about this is he's actually quoting Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. And Jesus didn't say this. John the Baptist said this, which is interesting. Listen, John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the promise. I know you guys are all itching to get into the Holy Spirit stuff, but we're going to get into that, don't worry. But just recognize, listen, just recognize, okay? Jesus says, <laughs> uh, or, or Luke quotes Jesus as saying, you've heard from me, and then Jesus somehow quoting John the Baptist. Now, we don't have a record of Jesus quoting John the Baptist, but we do see over and over again where Jesus reiterates what John the Baptist promised. But it's also called the promise of the Father, There's many scriptures in the Old Testament that would allude to the fact of God dwelling in and with his people. And that that being fulfilled initially in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see this as we continue through Acts, okay? But it's interesting here, this is the Father says through the John the Baptist and Jesus quotes it. Because John the Baptist was like the last Old Testament apostle. Or, I'm sorry, Old Testament prophet. But also it's interesting that Jesus gets the credit when his people speak truth. Something to think about for the future. Now, this promise, listen, this, this, is, this promise in Jesus, he's, he, he gives an order based on the promise. You wait, and then the promise comes, okay? But also, listen, it's a promise that's based on his actions, okay? See, when he says, you heard from me, this is not just him quoting and saying, what John the Baptist said is fine, and, and I agree with that, therefore I'm giving credit that that could come from me. But Jesus, over and over again, alluded to him pouring out his spirit on his people. Listen to this. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out, notice, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him would were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now there's some really great insight that we don't have time to get into about what's going on in John chapter 7 and why at that feast Jesus said these things. But that's another Bible study. But I want you to see for today, listen, I want you to see that Jesus was telling the, the nation of Israel the Jewish nation whom he is God's chosen king over. He's telling them, listen, if you're thirsty, if you want something more than dead religion, if you want something that's greater than Roman oppression, if you are thirsty for something in your life, come to me, he says. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, if you want If you want this, if you want to experience God's power, if you want to experience what God wants to do in you, come to me. He doesn't even say come to the Holy Spirit. Still, the Holy Spirit is God as well. He says come to me. This is significant. It's significant because he's he's basically saying it's only through me that you're actually enabled, that you actually become a vessel that's clean enough the Holy Spirit can dwell in. See, God's not going to dwell in an unclean thing. 
God's only going to dwell in a cleansed thing, in a perfected thing, in a righteous thing. God's only going to dwell in those he's made righteous. And we can only be made righteous by the finished work of Jesus. This is why it says the Spirit's not been, yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He had not yet been crucified. He had not yet been resurrected when he said these things. He had not yet ascended into heaven, which we'll talk about in just a minute. It's interesting, too, that the night before Jesus is crucified, we have what's called the upper room discourse in John chapter 13 through basically chapter 17. It's called the upper room discourse because most of it happens with Jesus and his disciples celebrating Passover in this upper room, okay? And, and the bulk of his message, the bulk of his instruction to his disciples is about the work of his Holy Spirit. Let me just give you an example. In John chapter 14, here's what Jesus says. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That is literally another of the same kind. Jesus himself being the helper. Another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, this is important. Because as we go through the book of Acts, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the difference between the Holy Spirit dwelling with somebody, as he did uh, through the person of Jesus, as Jesus did his ministry, right? The Holy Spirit's active in the ministry of Christ. Christ, of course, is God's only son. He never stopped being God's only son. But he also did work by the power of the Spirit, okay? So the Holy Spirit's with Jesus, and they're experiencing that that kind of with or coming alongside power of the Holy Spirit. But he says, this is what he, Jesus says, listen, but the Holy Spirit's then going to be in you. He's going to dwell in you. Now, we just read, didn't we, in John chapter 7, the Holy Spirit will come out of you like living waters. This is really important. We've got to get this process right. Every single person who has put their faith exclusively in the person of Jesus to save them. They believe that Christ died for their sins. They believe that Christ is risen from the dead. They believe that Christ will return from glory and, and ultimately make all things right. Everyone who believes that only does so by the work of God's Holy Spirit. So if you believe that, whether you're feeling quite spiritual or not, if you can know that you sincerely believe in this Jesus, God's Spirit has already begun a work in you. And here's the good news, you'll finish it. You'll finish it. This is important as well because Jesus makes a promise to his disciples. A promise of his continuing work through his Holy Spirit. And he keeps his promise. He keeps his promise. As a church that, that believes in the power of God's Holy Spirit, as a church that is dependent, wants to be at least dependent upon the power of God's Holy Spirit, as a church that still believes that God does supernatural things, we believe these things because Jesus promised these things. We don't believe these things because of our individual experiences, no matter how much those experiences look like the book of Acts. We don't dismiss those experiences, but that's not why we believe. We believe based on what Jesus has promised us. Do you get this? This is so important. 
Because if I was to sit here and rattle off those experiences to you, you some of you guys would feel really bad. Some of you guys would go, oh, it's amazing. Let's see more of that. Some of you guys would go, man, I've never experienced any of that. I believe in Jesus and I haven't experienced, well, I have a deep, dumb voice when I feel this way, but yeah, you know, I've never experienced any of that. And the thing is, it's not about what you've experienced. It's about what Jesus promises. Are you guys following me? Not, not downing experiences at all. But I'm saying it's about us trusting what Jesus promises. He's the promising Jesus. But also, listen, he's the sending Jesus. Jesus tells them this, right? The resurrected Christ tells the disciples this. And then here's what we see in verse 6. It says, and when they had come together, they asked him. Now, you can imagine, Jesus has said to this, you know what? Wait in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And they're going, oh, it's happening. God's going to dwell with his people again. <gasps> it's happening. And so they say in verse 6, they came together and they said, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? He, he says, is this going to happen? Now, here's what they're thinking, okay? The disciples, listen, they're convinced more than ever that Jesus is God's chosen king. I mean, they were convinced of that before his death and resurrection. Then, the, then his, his crucifixion happens, and they're like, we don't know what's going on. And they're really depressed. They go back fishing. And then they hear he's resurrected. And they go, oh, what is happening? We don't understand. And he's got to appear to them over and over and over again, over 40 days, to convince them, I am really alive. It's really me. This is still happening. God's kingdom has come with me, the king. Still happening. And so now, when he starts talking about God's going to send his spirit, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen now. They're like, oh, yes, it's going to happen. You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. No more Roman oppression. I can imagine them chanting it. No more Roman oppression. And they're thinking, finally, we're going to experience heaven on earth. Well, and you know what? It's, it's, it's good that they wanted this. Because you know the truth was? In the three and a half years they spent with Jesus, they experienced heaven on earth. Jesus is heaven and earth coming together. And the promise of God's kingdom actually is through, from Genesis through Revelation, is heaven and earth coming together. Now, there's some details that are going to take place before that. But still, it's heaven and earth coming together. And since Jesus has come, listen, we are already there and we're not yet there. But they're saying, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? Is this going to happen? See, they, they rightly recognize that Jesus beat death. And if he's got that kind of power, for sure all oppression and suffering is just about to end. If he has that kind of power, certainly he's going to go, whoop, and it's all going to be done. And don't we wish he would do it that way sometimes? But what does Jesus say in verse 8? Oh, actually, let me finish verse 7. Jesus said to him, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority. Now, times means this, okay? When he says the times, it basically means you cannot know how long before this happens. You can't know. This is what Jesus is saying to disciples. You can't know. And he's also saying the seasons. He's saying you can't know for sure the exact events that will indicate that this is about to happen. Now, there are signs of the times. Jesus talks about that. But they're not exact. They're not meant to be exact. They're meant to keep us focused on Jesus, Okay? I've taught the book of Revelation three times. 
I've taught the book of Daniel. It's in the book of Daniel twice. I have a pretty clear idea of, a, of several different lenses by which you could say, here's how these things are all going to come to pass. But I really just want to take God's word at face value when, he, when Jesus says, you can't know for sure. And, and here's the deal. They're saying, Lord, we recognize you are God's chosen king. You are Lord. You have all power. So is this the time we're going to use that power to establish heaven and earth? And Jesus says, look, it's not for you in the times and seasons, but, verse 8, but you will receive power. What are they wanting Jesus to flex? His power. What does you say they're going to receive? His power. Listen, this is not the plan they are hoping for, but God will give them the power to fulfill his plan. Jesus says, listen, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we'll talk about those things in just a second. But I want you to think about, think about this, okay? Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to give you power to crush those who oppress you. I'm not going to give you power to rid this earth of injustice. I'm going to give you power to testify of me in your actions and with your words. You're going to testify of me by my power that I am still Lord even as you suffer. And one of the things you're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Acts is God's people, Jesus' people, suffering for his name and going, Lord, what a privilege. How do you do that? How do you get beat up because you follow Jesus and say, thank you, Lord, for that privilege by the power of the Holy Spirit? How do you have boldness the next time to tell someone about Jesus, knowing last time you got beat up by the power of the Holy Spirit? This is what God's going to do. This is what God did. This is what we're going to see in the book of Acts. Now, what's interesting here, he says, look, you're, gonna, you're, you're not going to, you know, when, in answer to the question, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He says, no, but that same power that you're hoping is going to restore the kingdom of Israel is going to be used to make witnesses, to, for you to be my witnesses. And notice where he says where. These are all places. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Or another version says the uttermost parts of the world. This is basically an outline of the book of Acts. There should be a, a graphic on the screen. Acts chapter 1 through 7 is about how Jesus begins to do this by his Holy Spirit through his people in Jerusalem. And then Acts chapter 8 to 12 is basically how Jesus begins to, to do this by his Holy Spirit through his people in Judea and Samaria. And then Acts chapter 13 and 28, uh, 28, 13 to 28 is how Jesus continues to do this by his power through his people. Specifically, uh, we'll see the Apostle Paul unto the uttermost or the ends of the earth. This is what we're going to see. And it's interesting because then we get to the book of Acts. Spoiler alert. Here you go. Here's the ending. It ends with Paul being in, in, in house arrest in, in, in Rome, but actually able, listen, actually able to tell loads and loads and loads of people about Jesus. Guess where we are right now in history? Acts chapter 29. There's 28 chapters in Acts. We are the 29th chapter. We are continuing to be used by Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to make 
Jesus known. He's the sending Jesus. When he was on this earth, he sent people out to tell people about him, to, to pronounce the kingdom of God has come. When he's, after he's crucified and resurrected, right before he's ascended, he says, wait, because you're going to be filled with power, and when you have that power, then you're going to go. I'm going to send you out to tell people about me. He's the sending Jesus. Guess what? If you believe in this Jesus, this living Jesus, this promising Jesus, you've got to believe he's the sending Jesus, and you need to consider yourself sent. He's the living Jesus. He's the promising Jesus. He's the sending Jesus. And he's the returning Jesus. This is who Luke is presenting. In verse 9, here's what we see. After Jesus says this to them, he says, as it, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, you, you can imagine the scene. They're hearing this. And we've got to kind of remember, overlap this with the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24. But they're standing there, and they're, they're hearing this stuff from Jesus. And their mind's blown away because they're going, man, we've, we've, we've been hearing stuff about the kingdom for 40 days. We've been hearing about the problems of the Spirit. We've been hearing about what God's doing. We've been recognizing. He's been teaching us that he's the fulfillment of all of Scripture. That's also in Luke 24. And we've been hearing this stuff, and now he's saying, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, wait here, and you're going to have power, and you're going to go out and change the world. See, it's not about just restoring the kingdom of Israel, it's about bringing people into Israel. Grafting Gentiles into the nation of Israel through faith in Jesus. It's about God creating a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Look around, people, that's us. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's doing. And, and you can see, you can imagine as they're, as they're hearing this. And this is, remember, this is the Jesus. Listen, this is the Jesus that they've walked with three and a half years. They saw the miracles. They've heard the teaching. But also, they've gotten incredibly close to him. They love Jesus. John laid his head on Jesus' chest. I don't know very many men I would do that with. I only know one woman I would do that with. He, they, they loved Jesus, and their relationship is about to change. It's not that they're going to become, that Jesus, listen, is going to become somehow less relational. That's not the case. Because Jesus didn't become relational, God the Son didn't become relational by taking on human flesh. Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has always been relational. That's why you and I are relational. Because we're made in God's image. What we see in Jesus is just the depth of the kind of relationship that, that God has within himself and that God invites us into. He's no less relational, but they're going to see him more exalted. Remember, what, what, what do they see here? They see him, he gets done talking and then starts floating away. He gets engulfed in the cloud. What's that all about? A cloud in the scripture is usually a, a, a picture of God's presence. Now, it doesn't mean if you look up in the clouds that God must be there. God's everywhere. But I'm just saying it's God's manifest presence, the, the Shekinah glory, his cloud. So it's in a sense that, that God's glory is there and he ascends to heaven. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that the, the, the Bible sees Jesus as sitting at the right hand of God. He's in that place of authority and power. 
He's exalted. So he's just as relational, but he's exalted. And maybe, just maybe, this is why we don't experience the power of God or we don't trust God for the power of God because we only see him as relational and we don't see him as exalted. And Luke says, you got to see him as both. Jesus says, you got to see me as both. Interesting, Jesus, again, in that, all, in that upper room discourse in, uh, discourse in uh, John 13 through 17, he says this, John 16, 6 and 7, listen. Jesus says, because I have said these things to you, in other words, I'm leaving, he says, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I know you guys are sad. I, I know you're thinking, I, I don't want the end, this relationship to end. But he's saying, it's actually going to get better. We are experiencing, listen, we're experiencing something better if we're Jesus followers, if we've been born again by God's Spirit, and therefore God's Spirit dwells in us, if we are belonging to Him, we've, we've trusted in His death and resurrection to make us right with the Father, if we belong to Jesus, listen, we are experiencing something better than the apostles did walking with Him for three and a half years. Doesn't that blow your mind? Isn't that something you want? There's a change in their earthly relationship, but it's not in a disadvantage, it's an advantage. And it's also about a hope of an eternal relationship, because remember, this is the returning Jesus. What happens in verse 10? It says, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, probably angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand, up, stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, King James says, the same Jesus. <laughs> This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is important for very many reasons. One of, not least of which is, there's been many false Jesuses that Jesus talked about. Many people over the history have said, I'm the second coming of Christ. There are literally, right now, millions upon millions of people that worship false Jesuses who have supposedly come back. Our Jehovah's Witness friends believe that Jesus came back spiritually somehow and lives in Brooklyn, New York. Good bagels, I guess. <laughs> the Mormons, okay, they're waiting for Jesus to come back, but they don't really see him as any more of God's son than we are. He's brother to Lucifer, false Jesus. There are cults. There's a cult group. I can't remember the name of the cult group. There's a cult group in, in Florida where a guy came, some guy came from South America and said, I am now the, the second incarnation of Jesus. You should follow me. And you know what? People started following him. Not 100, not 200, not 500, not 5,000. More than 50,000 people follow this guy as the risen Jesus. It's a false Jesus. Because Jesus says, when I come back, or the angel said, look, when Jesus comes back, same way. He ascended from the Mount of Olives, he's going to come back in the Mount of Olives, and everyone's going to see him. I was thinking about this the other day when I was driving or, or on the bus uh, uh, on the way home from work, and, you know, it's, it's dusk, and people are, um, you can kind of see in people's houses, which is kind of creepy, I know, but you can't help it. Their windows are open. And every single person I saw driving past was doing this. And I thought, Jesus is going to come back, and everyone's going to go, you see it on their phones. 
Now, the point is this, listen. What, what, what the angels are saying to, to these disciples is stop gazing into heaven and start looking unto Jesus. Do what he says. Wait well, which we'll talk about next week. Listen, this is what we're commanded to do in Hebrews chapter 12. It says that we are to lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's a race to tell people about Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He went first and testified of the love of God. We go in his place with him next to us by the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us the presence of God with us, telling others about Jesus. And man, so many people today are just like looking up, come back, Lord. Or looking at the screen, come back, Lord. We need to be looking out, Lord, until you come back. We want to bring as many people to heaven with us as possible. He says in verse 11, This same Jesus will come back in the same way. See, here's what we read in Peter's, Peter who was there, Peter who saw Jesus crucified, who saw and had many conversations with the resurrected Christ, Peter who, who will be the main character in the first part of the book of Acts. Peter would later write this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen, I'm going to finish with this. He says, Peter would write, The Lord, Jesus, is not slow to fulfill his promise as some counsel is. This is this promise to return. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, and notice, hastening the coming of the, the, the day of God. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, we'll talk more about the waiting bit. What about the hastening bit? About. The Bible says Jesus said to us that before he returns, the gospel will go out everywhere. Now, in one sense, the gospel did go out throughout the known world in the first century. And in another sense, the gospel's got a long ways to go. There's still so many people groups that have never heard the gospel. This is why we don't want to just be a sending church. We, or a, uh, we don't want to just be uh, uh, sent people, we want to be a sending church. In other words, we want to support Stephen and Katie as they're in Taiwan sharing the gospel. We want to be a, a, a supporting church, a sending church. Because we believe that Jesus is going to come back soon and very soon, and we want as many people as possible to be in heaven with us. Here's where this starts, and I'll close with this. Peter says, the reason the Lord hasn't come back yet is there's still people coming to repentance. There's still people turning from their sin and turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want to love you more than I love my sin. I want to trust you and see my sin get washed away and be me be delivered from it. I want to learn and be changed. I want you to save me. Maybe you're the one. Maybe you're waiting and you're refusing to repent and you're keeping us all from going to heaven. 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the Lord's going to come back at his right time. But in all seriousness, this is where it starts. It starts with you turning, instead of facing your sin and your own self-rule and your own living your life by what you want and turning from that and saying, no, Lord, I want to face you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. I believe you died to pay for my sins. You are living and alive now so I can walk with you. You have told me that you have given me your Holy Spirit and I want to learn to walk by your Spirit. 